Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all today. Good to see the guests who have joined us. Glad that you could be with us to worship this morning. Let's pray as we turn our attention to God's Word in these next few moments. God, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for how it teaches and trains. And Lord, we ask now for your Spirit to be at work in our own hearts and our own minds As we look at this text of Scripture today from 1 Peter, we ask and pray that you would use it to transform us. God, that you would use it to equip us to live in these days that we find ourselves. Lord, that we would stand firm in the faith, come what may. So Lord, we ask that you would uh, do that work in our hearts. Lord, that you would be at work today and that you'd be glorified today. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, um, for those of you who are guests with us today, we have been working our way through the book of First Peter, and we've been looking as a church uh, to be equipped to live uh, as Christians in a hostile world, which is why we have our, our tagline, Hopeful and ho- uh, Holy in a Hostile World, which is really the theme of the book of First Peter. So we've been looking at this as a church, and... Uh, one of the things that we've been doing is memorizing scripture. Another thing that we have done is looking at some of the stories of the saints who have endured in the past. And I want to start that way this morning uh, and look a little bit at this uh, story of Renee, the Duchess of Ferrara. She lived from 1510, excuse me, she lived from 1510 to 1575. Uh, her dad was actually a King Louis Twelfth, but her parents died when she was a child. Her sister was Queen Claudia, married to King Francis I. Uh, Renee was married off for political advantage to the Duke of Ferrara. Now, because her parents uh, died when she was young, she was raised by a governess who was from England and who also happened to be a Protestant Christian. So when she came over, she smuggled a copy of Wycliffe's English Bible with her and she taught Renee the Word of God. So Renee grew up as a Protestant Christian, but her husband, the Duke, was a staunch Roman Catholic. And as you might imagine, this caused some big problems. Rene was not a timid Christian. She was a bold and faithful Christian who lived her whole life for Jesus Christ. She brought Protestant Christians and pastors to her court in Ferrara where they would worship together and read scripture and study the word and pray and hear sermons preached. She uh, worked to, to help the Bible be translated into Italian. And as persecution, at this time in history, there was massive persecution in France against the Huguenots, which are uh, Protestant Christians. And as persecution increases in France, many of them fled to Rene's court, among whom was John Calvin. Now, when the Roman Catholic Church leaders wanted Calvin arrested, it was Rene who helped him escape along with other Christians, to Geneva. Now, this really ticked off her husband because the duke wanted a good relationship with Rome. 
So he began arresting the Protestant Christians in his kingdom. Rene pleaded with him to let them go, but he ignored her. And instead, he tried to do everything he could to rid her of her beliefs. He locked her away in his castle, in a room alone, set a guard by her door. Uh, he, <laughs> he brought in the Catholic Inquisition, who grilled her day after day, week after week, constantly threatening her with death if she refused to recant. Eventually, Rene broke down, went to confession, went to mass. But her husband, the duke, didn't believe the sincerity of this. And so even though she regained a measure of freedom, he burned all of her books. He surrounded her with spies. Imagine with me for a minute that your husband surrounds you with people who are constantly spying on you, watching you to see if you're actually living your Christian faith. He sent their two daughters away to a convent and turned their hearts against their mother. Um, but he was right. She didn't really recant. She was still secretly at great risk to herself helping the Protestant exiles in Switzerland and in France. She never stopped helping. She was a huge help to the Reformation. Well, eventually her husband, the Duke, dies, and her son, Alfonso, becomes the new Duke. And he hates Protestant Christians more than his dad did. He said, I'd rather live with someone who has the plague than with a Huguenot. And so he delivers an ultimatum to his mom. He says, either you repent, you either abandon your Protestant faith, or you're going to be exiled from Ferrara forever. So rather than abandon her faith, she left Ferrara, goes back to France where she lives in her castle, and I will not pronounce this name right, Montargis. France now is on the brink of civil war. There is persecution breaking out all over the place against Protestant Christians. Nevertheless, she sets up a chapel for Protestant worship, and she does everything she can to have the gospel proclaimed in the city. She lives through the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572, where somewhere between 10 and 30,000 Protestant Christians are murdered all across France, and hundreds of people flee to Renée's castle, where she welcomes them in and cares for them. I love her castle becomes known as the Hotel of the Lord. Her hospitality is known all over France. Amazing, amazing woman. She lives the rest of her life doing absolutely everything that she can to see the gospel advance, serving Jesus Christ, despite being reviled, hated, persecuted by her husband, exiled by her son, rejected by her daughters, tortured by the Catholic Church, despite the risk constantly of her own persecution. She lives faithfully for Christ, no matter the cost. What's it going to take for us to live like that? That's... that's question Peter is going to help us answer today in our text. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and we're going to read our text today. Follow along as I read. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. To summarize this briefly, the gospel must lead to a new way of thinking and a new way of life, living for God's will not ours. The time that is spent, the time that is past, is enough for living for sin. So put away sin and serve God. Serve God even if it means you suffer for it. Persevere in the faith knowing that spiritual life in heaven awaits those who die in Christ. The message for us today is this. Resolve to live the rest of your life for Christ. Resolve to live the rest of your life for Christ. This comes right out of verse 2. Peter says, live for the rest of the time in the flesh. That is, for the rest of your life on earth. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Resolve to live for the will of God the rest of your life for Christ. We're going to see five truths to help us do that this morning. First, arm yourself with Christ's way of thinking. We see this right in verse 1. Look there again with me. Peter says, Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, in the previous passage that Pastor Jonathan preached last week, what we saw is that Christ's victory was preceded by his suffering. So he, he suffered, died, and then he rose again victorious, and now he sits at God's right hand where he reigns forever. Christ's suffering was the pathway to his exaltation. And Peter is encouraging Christians in Asia Minor to follow Christ's example, to follow the same pathway, the cross before the crown. We see that again and again in the New Testament. Jesus said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, Mark 13, 13. The Bible says we're God's children, and if children, then heirs, heirs of, of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, Romans eight seventeen. Paul went back to the churches that he planted after suffering and he strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14.22. See, we're told in the Bible again and again that suffering is the pathway to glory. 
So Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have the exact same mind as Jesus, the same way of thinking as as Jesus. And now when we read that, we almost always focus in on Jesus's humility. Have the same mindset as Jesus. That means you should be humble. But what we need to do is connect the dots because it's his humility that leads Jesus to be willing to obey God, even to the point of suffering. And so Paul writes, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2.8. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Philippians 2.9. So just like Paul, Peter is calling us to think like Christ. Since Jesus suffered in the flesh, Peter says, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with what? with Christ's way of of thinking, like a soldier prepares for battle. Every soldier knows that the battle is going to cost him something. It may even cost his life. So disciples should prepare for suffering knowing that we're in a battle and there is a cost to following Jesus. Think like Christ about suffering for obedience. Why? Why? It's so that we have the same resolve to obey God no matter the cost. Let's just confess that this is not our way of thinking. This is not how we think. Sure, we want to follow Christ, but from a safe distance. We don't want to get too close. We don't want to be too much like Jesus because we know that if we do, it's going to cost us. We'd prefer a religion that provides good health, a comfortable home, financial security, and some good friends that we can chum around with. We want... a a religion that demands few risks and costs little or nothing. But as J.C. Ryle said, a religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. A cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end a useless Christianity without a crown. Just as Jesus embraced his calling to obey God at any cost. That was his mindset. That was his way of thinking. We must embrace that way of thinking as well. If we're going to live the rest of our lives for Christ, we have to have that way of thinking so that we resolve to obey God no matter the cost. And that brings us to point two. But before we go on, I want to mention something that I'd like to try to do as we go through the rest of this text. Because Peter is telling us that we should arm ourselves with Christ's way of thinking, I want to try to point out Christ's example as we go through the text. Because this is something that Peter himself is keen to do in this letter. We saw that in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. So we're going to keep coming back. I'm going to keep coming back to Christ's example because we are to be like Christ. Amen? You with me? Okay. So point two then, like Christ, live your time on earth for the will of God. We see this in verses one and two. Look there again. 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Why arm ourselves with Christ's thinking? So that we live our time on earth for the will of God. Whoever has suffered in order to obey God and yet continues to obey God despite suffering shows by their way of life that they have made a clear break with sin. They have ceased from sinning. It's not that they're perfect. That's not what Peter is saying. It's that sin is no longer their master. God is. His will is what is of top priority, their motivation in life. You see that because they're willing to obey God even if they suffer and they don't quit, they continue to obey God. They're saying, I've done with sin, I live for the will of God no matter the cost. Sin is the opposite of God's will. Sin is breaking God's commands, living against His will. So a Christian who is willing to suffer for doing God's will is showing that serving God, that's my top priority. That's my motivation. It's just like the person who trains for the Olympics who gives up many things to pursue their dream of competing. Uh, This is the Chula Vista Olympic Training Center Um, On their website, it says, elite athletes train here, which is probably why I've never heard about it. (laughs) And don't know anything about it other than that. The person who trains for the Olympics gives up many things in order to achieve their goal of competing in the Olympics. They, they will give up sleep because they have to get up early and exercise. They will give up uh, certain foods that they would like to eat, potentially desserts because they want to try to stay healthy. They will give up time doing things that they would like to do because they spend so much time training. They will go through physical pain and weariness and the critique of their coaches and all of the sports people and all of these other things. And I'm sure that we could add a whole number of things that, that, that Olympic athletes would be willing to sacrifice and to go through. And we might ask them, why would you put up with that? But isn't the answer obvious? They're doing it all so that they could achieve this goal, so they could achieve their higher aim. The sacrifices that they're willing to make and continue to make show that they're totally committed. So they're willing to to give up some sleep and to give up certain foods and to give up their time in order to achieve this goal. And Peter wants the same kind of resolve in the Christian so that our driving purpose is to live the rest of our lives for the will of God. So much so that we're willing to make sacrifices and continue making sacrifices to do so. That kind of Christian demonstrates that they have ceased from sin and they live their whole lives for God. Now, like training strengthens the athlete, when when we obey God despite the suffering, it has a morally strengthening effect on us. It makes our commitment to God 
stronger and stronger and stronger. So if we're living, the, if, you, if you're going to live for the rest of your life for God, you have to make this kind of commitment. So we live not to avoid pain as Christians, but to please God. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, John 4, 34. Let's make that what fuels us too. Jesus said, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, John 5, 30. Let's make that our aim as well. Jesus said, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Man, let's make that how we live as well. So how are you going to live the rest of the time that you have on earth? Your time is short. It is fading fast. Are you going to use it to serve yourself or to serve the Lord? Now, however long God gives you to live. And let's resolve to live zealously for the will of God. Let's spend the rest of our lives serving God, not our sinful desires, even if we suffer for it, to our last breath. This leads to truth three. This is the other side of the coin. Like Christ, give sin no place in your life. Living for God's will means giving no sin or giving sin no place in your life. We see this in verse three. Look there with me. Peter says, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter's telling the disciples, you've had enough time living like the Gentiles. Far too much, in fact. <laughs> way, way too much time. If you're going to live for the rest of your life, for Jesus Christ, it means you can give sin no more time, no more place in your life. This is a call to persevere in the faith and to not turn back to sin. We have to repent and put off sin in our life. And the trouble is, is that oftentimes we love our sin like we love our children. We embrace them. We delight in them. We indulge them. Being Christ's disciple is going to cost you your sins. You have to give up everything that goes against God's will. You have to fight your sin if you're going to be friends with God. There can't be any special truce made with a certain sin in your life that you happen to love. You have to put sin to death. Peter's warning us here against following the cultural morals of the society, living like the, the people of the world around them, like they used to do. And he paints a sketch of what it looks like to, to do what the Gentiles like to do. And he gives three broad categories of sin, sexual immorality, partying driven by alcohol, and idolatry, all of which are common sins today. The question that's more important is, what are the sins in your own life? What are the idols in your own life that you must put to death? 
that you must abandon? Do you struggle with with lust or pornography? With sexual immorality? Repent. Repent of any sexual sin in your life. Turn away from it to Christ. If you need help, come and talk to one of us as pastors. Get some accountability in your life. We want to see you free from that sin. Maybe it's not that sin. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's anger. Impatience. Disobedience to your parents. Gossip. What is it for you? What sin in your life do you need to kill? Or as Peter would say, you've spent enough time, <laughs> far too much time with that sin. It's time to put that to death. What idols in your life do you serve? Do you worship? Is it the good opinion of others? Is it comfort? Is it security? What idols in your life need to be brought down? In the old days, when a ship was sinking, the crew would think nothing of tossing all the precious cargo overboard to save the ship. As a Christian, we must be willing to give up anything that stands between us and God. Ask yourself this question, does my life look different from my old way of life? Does my life look different than the lives of the unbelievers who are living around me? Or do I live basically the same way that they do, chasing after basically all the same human passions that they do? Now, maybe you're thinking today, well, I grew up in a Christian home, and I didn't really get into all these terrible bad sins. Uh, you know, like, they're talking about some pretty wicked stuff here. So, I don't really have, like, a big contrast in my past life. What about me? Well, first of all, if you've not participated in some of these gross sins, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Nevertheless, you've still sinned. And the point remains the same. The point is, don't go back to sin. Don't turn to sin. Don't go and live like the rest of the world lives. Don't be lured away from Christ. Persevere in faithfulness. Like Jesus Christ, give sin no place in your life. Peter's already told us he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth, 1 Peter 2, 22. In him there's no sin, 1 John 3, 5. Jesus lived holy, innocent, and unstained, Hebrews 7, 26. He was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4, 15. 
We don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted, and yet he remained faithful to God. God gives you everything that you need for life and godliness. Live like Christ by giving no place to sin in your life. The fourth truth, then, to help us live for Christ is like Christ, be willing to suffer the reproach of men. We see this in verse 4. Peter says, with respect to this, that's the sin and idolatry that he's been talking about, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. That is, they speak evil of you. They mock you, ridicule you, criticize you, slander you, speak all kinds of evil falsely against you. They defame you. They disrespect you. That's what it means to malign you. See, the Christians, the, the change in their lifestyle was, was apparent. You could see it. And it bothered non-Christians. It bothered them that the Christians would not participate with them in these things. And so they maligned them. Literally, uh, so Peter says they wouldn't join with, or you don't join with, it's literally they wouldn't run with them anymore. To, to run with someone means that you do what they do. We still use that expression today. So we might say, oh, he, he runs with the wrong crowd. Or we might ask the question, who does she run with? We're not just asking who are they friends with. We're asking how do they live? That's what we're driving at. So the Bible says the companion of fools become fools, but the companion of the wise become wise. So who do you run with? Who do you run with? If you're going to live for the rest of your life for Christ, it matters who you run with. Run with Jesus and his people. Now, this flood of debauchery is this picture of a culture that is overflowing with sin. Exactly like today. It's a, it's a flood. Like when a flood, when the water spills over every boundary and it just goes everywhere. It goes in every di direction. It's this picture of unrestrained indulgence in sin. And when we don't plunge into that water with them, when we stand firm on the solid rock of Jesus Christ as the waters are swirling around us, that bothers them. When we live righteously, it invites the scorn of the wicked because they're convicted about their own behavior. Sometimes not joining in with someone is enough to convict them of their sin. R.C. Sproul tells this story about a time when Billy Graham went golfing with President Ford and a couple other uh, PGA Tour golfers. And so then after the round is over, uh, another uh, pro golfer comes up to one of the uh, PGA guys and he's like, hey, what was it like? You know, what was it like golfing with with the president and with Billy Graham. And the golfer just let loose this torrent of cursing. And he said, I don't need that Billy Graham shoving his religion down my throat. And he storms off to the practice tee. And the other golfer is like, oh. So he follows his friend. And after he hits you know, several balls, he calms down. And, and so his friend quietly asks the, the golfer, he's like, wow, so was Billy Graham, Billy, Billy Graham was a little rough on you out there, huh? He's like, actually, he didn't mention a word about religion. He didn't say a word. R.C. Sproul draws the conclusion that God's holiness, even when it's 
wrapped up in an imperfect human vessel, i.e. Billy Graham, even just him living a holy life, even just being in his presence was enough to bring conviction for sin in his life. When Christians live for Christ, unbelievers malign them because they're convicted in their conscience. They try to justify their immorality by tearing down righteous Christians, slandering them, spreading rumors and false accusations. Not everyone is going to like you as a Christian. Not everyone's going to like you as a Christian. Two weeks ago, we talked about the beatitude when Jesus says, blessed are you when people revile you and say all kinds of evil things against you on my account. Blessed are you. What we didn't talk about is the corresponding woe that goes with it from Luke 6. Jesus says, woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so they did the false prophets. Yet often our idea, our idea of the perfect Christian is somebody who's nice, who, who doesn't ruffle feathers, who gets along well with everybody, who never offends anybody. That's often the picture that we have in our minds of a perfect Christian. But the real Christian is not going to be liked by everybody. Now, that doesn't mean you should be a jerk. It does mean that you should be bold. And we as Christians are weak and we're timid because we're so afraid that we're going to offend somebody. We're more concerned about what not to do and what not to say because we might offend somebody than we are concerned about doing what Jesus says, obeying God. How can we live faithfully for Christ for the rest of our life if we're so afraid that we're going to offend somebody? Living for Christ is not going to be popular. Christians, you need to get used to the idea that you're not going to be popular. You're going to be hated. You're going to be reviled. It is not popular to live the truth, or to speak the truth. That's the kind of thinking that we need to arm ourselves with. We're going to be really unpopular for our beliefs. Beliefs like homosexuality is a sin, and marriage is only between one man and one woman, and abortion is murder, and there's only two genders, male and female, and transgenderism is a lie, <laughs> and that... that Transitioning someone isn't therapy, it's child abuse. And pushing all this sexual perversion on our kids isn't education, it's indoctrination. And women should not be forced to serve in combat situations. All of these beliefs, they're unpopular. Are you ready to stand to live for the truth? We live in a day where if you use the wrong pronoun... Man, when I was a kid, I was like, English. What do we need to learn English for? Well, apparently, the teacher should have told me, in the future, you will lose your job if you use the wrong pronoun. You've got to make the choice right now that you're not going to go along with lies and the flood of sin in the world around you. You have to make the choice right now 
I am going to live in the truth. I am going to, to obey the will of God come what may for the rest of my life. Living for Christ is going to cost you the favor of the world. It does, it's not just going to cost you your personal private sins. It's going to cost you the favor of the world. The good news is, is it's going to give you the favor and friendship of God. But the Christian has to be content to be despised if they're going to please God. So don't be surprised if you're mocked, if you're ridiculed, if you're, if you're slandered, if you're persecuted, if you're hated. Don't be surprised to find your beliefs and practices maligned, to, to be called backwards, to be thought a fool, to be told that you're on the wrong side of history, to have your words twisted, your actions misrepresented. Jesus said if they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? John 10, 25. We've got to be willing to be despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53, 3. Uh, the author of Hebrews says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. So that you wouldn't give up or lose your courage. Like Christ, we have to be willing to suffer the reproach of men. Finally, like Christ, persevere knowing God will justly judge all in the end. We see this in verses 5 and 6. Look there again with me. Peter says, But they, that's the unbelievers who live in sin and malign Christians, he says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We know this is the final judgment because this is all people in history are going to be judged, both the living and the dead. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. There's two encouragements here for us. The first one comes in, in verse 5. The wicked are going to give an account to God. No one is going to escape God's justice. Evil will be punished. Even though non-believers persecute you and malign you, they will not have the final word. And God's judgment is near at hand. It's literally God stands ready to judge. The axe is laid at the, at the root of the tree. So for, for non-Christians, this is a warning. You need to turn from sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ while there's still time. For the Christian, this is an encouragement that the wicked will be brought to account in the end. The second encouragement is in verse 6. And we know Peter's talking here about believers who have died because he says they're going to live in the Spirit the way God does. So chapter 4, verse 6 parallels chapter 3, verse 18, where Jesus died in the flesh. Pastor Jonathan was saying last week he died in the flesh, but now he was raised, he was resurrected, and now he lives in this new spiritual realm. It's the same pattern here. Even though believers die, like everybody does, they're going to be raised to new life in heaven, in this spiritual realm. You can imagine how the objection would go from a non-believer. What is the point of your Christianity? You Christians die just like everybody else. Peter is reassuring them that even if they are persecuted, even if they suffer, even though they die just like everybody else, you will be raised to eternal life in heaven. Persecution is temporary, but our hope is permanent. These are both meant to be encouragements for the Christians who are suffering in their faith. Remember why he's writing. These are encouragements for Christians suffering in their faith to persevere, stand firm. Why? Because at the close of history, 
disciples are going to be vindicated and the wicked are going to be condemned. As it turns out, you Christians are on the right side of history, after all. The implication of verses 5 and 6 is this. It's foolish. It would be foolish for a disciple to abandon Christ and to go back to their old sinful ways, even if they're persecuted for following Jesus. Christian, do not give in to the temptation to adopt the ways of the world around you so that you can escape suffering, so that you can experience the pleasures of sin. Because very soon the tables are going to be turned. The wicked will be judged. Christians will be vindicated. It's like this. Why would you join the losing team? Be like joining the Yankees knowing that they've already been beaten by the Red Sox. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a baseball fan and he, he called the Yankees the evil empire. And he said, the evil empire has been eliminated. Why would you join the evil empire knowing that they lose? It'd be something like buying a ticket for the Titanic when you see the ship sinking and in flames. Who cares how good the food is? Or the music is? Or how great the company is? If you know that ship's going down, why would you get on it? You see, as Christians, we know how the movie ends. We know which team wins and which team loses. Peter is saying, don't join the losers. Stick it out. You're on the team that wins. Do not turn from Christ to sin. Persevere. Stand firm in your faith. Why join them? Even if you suffer now, it's better than suffering in the end. We've already seen this in Christ in 1 Peter. How did Jesus persevere faithfully obeying God even to the point of death on a cross? Peter writes, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus knew that God was going to justly judge the wicked, but he also knew that God would justly judge him. That he would be vindicated. That God's verdict would lead to his exaltation. Jesus endured suffering for the joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12.2 We've got these same two encouragements as Christians to persevere in the faith until the end of our lives. The wicked will be judged and you will be raised to new life forever in heaven. So stand firm, knowing that God will justly judge all in the end. There's no doubt that being a Christian is costly. If you want to live as a true Christian, you will suffer for it. But the time that remains for you here on earth, even you young people, your time is short. There's not much time left. A few more years of watching and praying and serving and it's all going to be over. You will have weathered your last storm. You will have spent your last night in watchful prayer. You will have fought your last fight never to fight again. Yes, 
Yes, Christian, it is costly, but it's worth it. Even if you bear your cross now, you will exchange it someday for a crown. Let's pray. God, we ask and pray that, like Moses prayed, you would teach us to number our days rightly so that we would get a heart of wisdom and that you would establish the work of our hands. Help us to wisely know and do your will and make the best use of the time because the days are evil. We pray that you'd arm us with Christ's way of thinking so that we would live for you and for your will like he did, even if we suffer. We ask that you'd help us to persevere to the end, knowing that spiritual life and reward awaits us in heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.